Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a huge program today. In just a moment, Congressman Mark Pocan will be with us, taking your calls for the hour. And Dana Nuccicelli, an environmental scientist and writer who regularly debunks pseudoscience, is going to be talking about this bizarre Planet of the Humans, Michael Moore, trash the environmental movement movie. Uh, But first, Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for taking your calls here on the Tom Hartman program. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of the state of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman Pocan, welcome back. I see that there's a huge chunk of legislation here that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were announcing last night or yesterday afternoon. You want to tell us about it? And how's everything with you? Yeah, uh, so... I'm doing well, Tom. Thanks for having me again. So Friday, Congress will be voting on a Democratic-only bill, and this is different than every other CARES bill we've had where Republicans have come to the table to negotiate. They haven't, so there's going to be a Democratic-only bill that's over 1,800 pages. I think they're calling it the HEROES Act before we were calling it CARES II. In Congress, we never keep any consistency. But um, anyway, it's the HEROES Act is what it's called now, which is kind of the next stage of things that we're uh, trying to cover for the current times. Largely, it includes things like funding for local and state governments. It includes some things that would address testing, the Postal Service funding, on and on. There's a lot of provisions. But there's also a lot of things that a lot of progressives have advocated for that's not in here. One being the paycheck guarantee proposal that Pramila Jayapal and Senator Warner essentially have introduced uh, that would be like England and Denmark guaranteeing payroll. Instead, they're using the employee retention tax credit, which I personally uh, am puzzled by because I think it doesn't address things as comprehensively as we need to. In fact, I've got a call after this with the Ways and Means staff, but they didn't answer some questions I gave them last night very well. And it doesn't include regular payments to people at the levels we were trying. It, again, has a one-time $1,200 payment. 
but you know, it goes to people who are working as opposed to I think what we really got to be focusing on are people who are hurting right now. So there's some good, there's some bad, there's a lot of we don't know what's in it exactly yet. We just got it. It's 1,800 pages. Even the draft I downloaded is tens of uh, dozens of pages to go through. And we're supposed to travel tomorrow and vote Friday on that bill. I think most people are expecting it to be a pretty partisan vote. Hmm. So you all are going back to D.C. for this. Any progress on being able to work remotely? I mean, I'm concerned. Well, they're going to do a proxy vote also, but we were told that last time and they bait and switched us as we flew across the country to come in, Tom. So sometimes I'm not sure, you know, my leadership know that's a good uh, thing to try to attract us so that we can finally get back to work. But, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration, Tom, among members that we weren't all heard as this bill was drafted. And because there's not a clear process for it, you know, Pramila Jaipal and I asked them not to do the vote Friday to wait till next week, have a full caucus. Speaker Pelosi turned that idea down. A number of us are upset. Some people may vote no. Some people are kind of like voting meh. Like, you know, this isn't real. It's only the Democratic proposal. Uh, why couldn't you have included some better things? And I think Ro Khanna, actually, who I know is on this program a lot, said it really well. No one's really given a good reason why some of these other priorities weren't included. And because we aren't having a full caucus a chance to, we're really not having a good conversation on it. So, it, you know, there's many good things. A lot of groups are supporting it. But Congress needs to get back to functioning. And I think committees are starting to do more remote hearings. And hopefully we're getting there naturally. I just think there's been some frustration on the creation of this bill. Yeah. Yeah. Remarkable. Well, let's pick up phone calls here. Sure. Pat in Watertown, Connecticut. You're on the earth. Congressman Pocan. Hey, I just want to talk about the uh, additional unemployment benefits if it gets extended, if it's going to get to the right people. Well, I have two granddaughters that are like 16 and 17 years old. They work at a laid off at a restaurant and they both collect unemployment and they live with their folks. I just think that it's not going to the right people. Okay. Congressman. Yeah. I mean, so I think one thing, Pat, I think it's fair to say, and I think everyone would agree to have it be perfect is going to be really hard to do, but I do agree with the general sentiment. I mean, that's why the $1,200 check to people who are working and doing well right now doesn't make a big difference unless you're really trying to have that be stimulus, but we're not seeing it from the first round through had any stimulative effects, you know, but I do think people who are unemployed right now at no fault of their own and a small business that doesn't have the demand at no fault of their own, helping them, it really makes a lot of sense. The single best thing you could do is give everyone a job. That's why we had proposals like the paycheck guarantee out there. Um, but short of that through UI, this is to give additional dollars. Otherwise, people can't afford their rent uh, or their mortgage. So you do want to target those folks. And yes, you pointed out a couple examples where maybe it doesn't make as much sense, but it's extending UI, I think, in the general, this is only the surge money is for four months, of which about a month or month and a half has already passed since we passed CARES 1. But in general, I agree with your point that uh, let's focus on the people who really are hurting right now the most. And that is everything from people who are unemployed to small business owners to others who are really affected knowing that there always are going to be a few things in any definition without having definitions be 80 pages long that people might fall through the cracks and people try to take advantage of the system. You know, John Maynard Keynes back in the day suggested that the way to, to get an economy back on track was to hire one guy to dig a hole and hire another guy to fill it and pay them both. 
you know, knowing that the whole wasn't productive to society, but getting money into their hands would cause them to buy things which would stimulate the economy. In the case of this guy's daughters, isn't that sort of Keynesian stimulus? Well, here's, let me answer it this way, Tom. I would argue making sure that everyone has a job. If we look at what England and Denmark and Germany are doing, where they're subsidizing their employers who are hurt, who don't have demand right now, to still keep people employed, so that if you keep mm-hmm. your regular paycheck, you're able to pay your rent, and then you have no problems back home. That cuts down on unemployment. That cuts down on things like SNAP programs, food assistance. So ideally, in many ways, a job is the best program we could have. Unfortunately, this proposal is a tax credit, not a job guarantee that the Democrats are proposing. Uh, okay. Stick around. We'll be right back. You Congressman Pocan is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan in just a moment. We have a special video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how a letter that the IRS sent out to 3.9 million Americans saved 700 lives. And you're like, wait a minute, the IRS saved 700 lives? How did that happen? Well, it had to do with Obamacare, and it's a fascinating story. And it turns out that this analysis of this IRS mailing was actually the first time that the federal government has done a study that actually proved that people having access to health care produces fewer deaths. For every 1,648 people who got the letter, there was one fewer premature death. I'll explain the whole thing in the video. As I said, it's available over at TomHartman.com, and it is really worth checking out for a national health care system. Morris in Long Beach, California. Morris, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, good morning, Congressman Pocan, and thank you, Tom Harvin, for taking my call. Congressman, the events of 9-11 produced a $1 billion payment for 3,000 people that uh, were victims of the 9-11 attack. Do you believe or do you feel that the COVID-19 caretakers and nurses should be given the same treatment? Maybe some funds should be given to those nurses, people who lost their mother, lost their sister, etc. How do you feel about that? Thank you. Yeah, so I can tell you in the bill that's coming up Friday, I think there is a boost in pay to those workers because clearly people are putting their lives on the line and helping us all as a greater community. But I know there's been reluctance from Republicans previously. So this is in the Democratic proposal that we're voting on. It's not necessarily the real final bill. But I do think doing something to recognize those people in those professions. And I would argue, don't forget other essential workers. If you're in a grocery store right now and at a drive through um, you're also uh, at a greater risk, especially like in the grocery stores and in pharmacies and places. But I don't know. I mean, it's different. 9-11, you know, there was a fund set up for that. I think at this point, the, just the sheer number already you know, is somewhat hard because we're having controversy and debate over who's died from COVID-19 and who hasn't. But I think, you know, the emphasis, honestly, in my opinion, should be what Tom and I were just talking about. If everyone had a job, you're largely made whole, you can pay your rent, your mortgage, you have food for your family. That would be the single easiest way to address the vast majority of people. And there's still going to be people that fall through the cracks. And then we've got to get programs for them. 
I just don't know if we're really addressing it as a nation in the way that is the best equipped to take care of people. Anthony in Detroit, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I just wanted to ask if, you know, this is all about a pandemic and stuff. Like, has Medicare for All gotten any more traction in the mainstream Democratic caucus? And, um, you know, because I know they support COVID care for all. So, like, what's the big jump from that to that? Great question and great point, Anthony. I think I saw a public poll just in the last 48 hours that showed it was either 67 or 69 percent of people now support Medicare for All, including a sizable amount of Republicans, because this is really putting the focus on why we need a universal health care system. And we are the only industrialized country that does not have one. So I, I think the good news is the public is understanding this more. Elected officials, I always would argue, lag behind. If the people lead, eventually the leaders follow. I really believe in that statement. And I think, you know, it's good news when you see public opinion polls spike like that. Having said that, again, in the Democrat bill, you're not seeing a lot address that directly. I think there's a reopening of the ACA. There's some other measures to make sure there's no out-of-pocket expenses for COVID health care. But I think this is really making us that 30,000-foot argument about why you want uh, Medicare for all, because, again, anything could happen at any moment to any of us. And I think, you know, the common denominator should be that we all have access to health care. And by access, I mean we have health care. I'm not trying to play the access word. We have health care, period. Melanie in Monroe, Wisconsin, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. Mark, I'm wondering if you can provide any kind of help through your office or, or suggestions for my daughter who attends college in California. She lost her job. She needs to pay rent, eat, and she signed up for Wisconsin unemployment because that's where the the quarters that it goes back to is Wisconsin, her employment there. And she has signed up for an account on March 22nd. She's had a pending status ever since. She can't get through to them. They don't call her. She's tried the contact forms, no reply. And so now it's going on two months, and she's had no benefits paid out to her. And we're running out of money, and we need help. And so we're kind of at a loss to what to do. So is there any help that you can provide through your office to get something moving? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, you're in my district, and I'd say give my office a call. However, I'll be honest with you, uh, the unemployment system is run through the state, the state of Wisconsin, and I know that there are long wait lines right now, and they have 600 people, I think, answering calls at all moments, but they're still running into problems, which are pretty obvious right now. It's probably going to be a yeah, connection that you're going to have to have. So your state legislator might be a good first call, your state rep or your state senator, but we're more than glad to try to help you walk through it and tell you how to best do that. But um, because it's administered at the state level, it's going to be a state call. I'm about 90% sure. Wayne in St. Petersburg, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Congressman, for taking my call. My question is regarding Speaker Pelosi. Why does Speaker Pelosi consistently side with corporate establishment people first and provide them with resources and everything? And why do your Democratic colleagues keep her in the speakership? Honestly, Wayne, I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there. I mean, when you look at the bill coming on Friday, there's a lot of good things in here that help real people. In the first CARES Act, we fought for that additional money for unemployment. We fought for workers and families. And Speaker Pelosi did all of that. 
Am I upset that it doesn't have the paycheck guarantee bill in here? Yes. Am I upset it doesn't have a more regular payment going to people instead of a one-time $1,200 payment? Yes. But that's with any legislation. And, you know, I do think that, unfortunately, some elements of our caucus get listened to more. People in, you know, um, competitive districts and, and committee chairs who might have a bias in a few of these areas, and maybe that's why the bill's not as strong. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi wasn't the one advocating for bailing out corporations. That was the Republican majority in the Senate and also the president. But I do wish, you know, she would listen to some of the progressive initiatives more, uh, especially around the paycheck guarantee. I mean, I I still think that is the single best thing we could do, much like England and, and Germany and Denmark. And I think it's a big mistake for us not to be having that in our proposal that we're voting on Friday. So, you know, I think it's fair to criticize where I see the, the lack of seeing something good. But as I look at, at much of this, there's a lot of things. I'll bet you you would agree with 90 to 95 percent of what's in the bill. What we really disagree with is what's not in the bill. And I think that's often a judgment call that you have to take a look at and decide how to proceed. So I think all the progressive groups, individuals move on, everyone are endorsing the bill. Does that mean they also don't endorse the paycheck guarantee? No. But I do think there could be things that would be stronger in here. And we have to build, I guess, that popular support to force the speaker and those committee chairs to actually take up these ideas. David in Lee, Massachusetts. We have just a little over a minute to the break, David. A quick question for Congressman Pocan, please. Yes, thanks, Tom. I'm wondering if we're going to be bailing out mega banks and corporations and zero interest loans and all, can we not bring greater pressure on those organizations to become more democratic? In Germany, half the members of the board of directors of a corporation by law have to be voted in by the workers. Why can't we have something like that in the United States? And if we're once again bailing these guys out, don't we have an opportunity to bring that about? Thank you. Yeah, David, a good point. You know, we put that in our progressive caucus proposals for the bill to do just what you're recommending, have some structural changes for people getting money. We did get an oversight board for the federal money, but then we've also watched the president get rid of some of the inspector generals who are kind of the watchdogs on this. So it's a constant fight that we're having, but you're right. When we give that kind of money, there should be some strings attached, especially in industries that traditionally have gotten money and then laid off workers and done things that run counter to what our intention was. So do you think this is going to be reprised in this new bill, this $3 trillion bill? I don't see it, no, in this bill, but part, that's part of the problem is it's 1,800 pages, and I'm going to be, right. if I go and uh, give it no time to actually read it, it's, it's not a great You've got some to reading to do. <laughs> okay, I get yeah. it. <laughs> Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Coming up on the Science Revolution this week, entomologist Professor Gard W. Otis is here on the murder hornets. They invade hives and decapitate the bees inside in just a matter of hours, and scientists worry about them gaining a foothold in North America. Beyond Nuclear's Kevin Camps drops by on the announcement of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission that it's proceeding illegally with licensing a proposed high-level radioactive waste dump in New Mexico. Plus, author Stephen Hassan on the cult of Trump. Find The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Josh in Boulder, Colorado. Josh, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Representative Pocan, Elizabeth Warren just signed on to Cory Booker's Farm System Reform Act, which would stop new concentrated animal feeding operations from opening, and existing large CAFOs would be phased out by 2040. Last week, Ro Khanna and Jamie Raskin introduced companion legislation in the House. Will you support this legislation, or if not, please explain why you support factory farms? Uh, Josh, uh, if it was introduced last week, I guarantee I have not seen the bill, and this is the first time I've heard of the bill. We're busy dealing with the COVID-19 stuff right now, so I will take a look at it, but I don't know anything about the bill at all. David in Spotswood, New Jersey, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, um, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, I read in April 8th copy of the Bloomberg online that Japan has allocated $2.2 billion to relocate its production out of China to the United States. Being that, you know, we get a good share of our medicine, PPP, ventilators, and all other things that are essential to national security, why aren't we doing the same thing? Why isn't it in the bill that that um, is being proposed by the Democrats. Why aren't we relocating production from China back to the U.S. as part of reinvigorating our economy? Thanks. Yeah, and Japan is relocating it back to Japan. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the question is, do you, first of all, do you incentivize a company that already had a bad practice of taking jobs out of the U.S.? I do think we absolutely have to produce more in the United States. That's been my entire career in a state legislature and Congress, uh, especially as someone who's a strong union advocate. Uh, those are all jobs we should have here. Now we're seeing the problems with everything from medical devices to pharmaceuticals to PPEs and reagents uh, that we're having shortages of only produced in China. And uh, when I asked Secretary Azar the question on prescription drugs, whether or not we should be producing them in the United States, his response was something like, well, it could cost as much as a penny a pill more. Well, too bad, so sad. When you pay $1,000 a pill for the pill that cures hepatitis C and you need to take it 90 days in a row, uh, one penny is hardly a problem, right, to have a consistent supply in the United States. So I think there are many reasons why we should be producing more of these goods here. I think the real debate is, do you then incentivize a company that already did a bad practice by making the jobs leave here, and they're probably not paying taxes here either because they've done that to avoid taxes, do we incentivize them that way or do we just start creating more goods here and requiring it to be? I mean, one of the I'm introducing a bill, I believe, next week or this Friday, because the president's not using the Defense Production Act to do the very things that you just mentioned that we need here. I want to have Congress make the president. We can't do it ourselves. It has to be the president. But we can make the president have to do it because he's not doing the right thing by not making companies produce these goods when we need them right now, because this is certainly no different than being at a time of war as far as needing the production. Uh, we need to be able to say that as Congress if the president won't get it right. So I agree with the absolute the premise of what you're saying, whether or not giving them cash incentives to come back here after they already did something they shouldn't have. I think is a, a bigger debate. We should, though, have that debate. Linda, New Brunswick, New Jersey. You're on the air with Congressman Pope. Oh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm so excited to be on your show. Thank you both for taking my call. My question is, I'm sure. excited about the elections coming up in November, and now I'm concerned because they're saying that Russia has its hand in our elections trying to manipulate the vote. I am really concerned that if I vote, my vote's not going to count. What are we doing about that? It's not enough to say, well, we want to do this, but the president says we can't do it, so we can't do it. I don't understand that. I am concerned. Thank you, Linda. And I'm sorry, Linda, could you say that question in one sentence? I apologize. I had a separate text coming in from something on, on the bill that's coming up Friday. I apologize. She said she's concerned that uh, it, it, there okay. was a, a big segment on this on Joe Scarborough's show about how Russia has uh, apparently successfully infiltrated the election systems of pretty much all of our states. And she's huh. concerned that her vote is going to get manipulated or not counted. Yeah. So, I, you know, we know from last time that they tried to break into many systems. The thing is, they didn't have success, though, from the reports we got back, including our intelligence reports on that. So I still believe that, you know, obviously everyone should vote and you, that should absolutely not be a barrier to anyone voting. In fact, if anything, it should make you want to get out all the more so that we can have our votes out there. It's the big reason why the Democrats and I've been especially strong advocate for having a paper uh, receipt to every electronic voting machine that we actually have a way to recount so that even if they try to do something, we have a way to get around anything they would do. Many machines do have that, but not all machines. And that should be an absolute requirement so that we have a verifiable, auditable 
way to make sure that votes are, are counted. So I think those are some good strategies if your local community or state doesn't have, try to advocate for. But so far, I have not seen something from our intelligence briefings that are telling us that we have a reason yet to worry, and we didn't four years ago, because again, they tried, they weren't successful, and it is a little trickier than just breaking into the system to be able to, I think, do the scale of what they would obviously like to do. Russ in Hickory Hills, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Ah, thank you for taking my call, Mr. Pocan. Nice to, to listen to you, Tom. This morning I wake up like I usually do, and I listen to Squawk Box, and Rob Portman's on there. And he's complaining this $3 trillion, oh, we, we can't afford it. Deficits are rising, oh, we're, we're, we're just breaking the bank. But yet in the second sentence, we'll go $3 trillion just in infrastructure. I hope you Democrats ain't going to go along with that because there's got to be a red line with this guy, with this Republican senator. They're willing to put $3 trillion just in infrastructure for their rich friends, but not a dime for the working class or to help the states out. When you guys go, what do you say about that? Yeah, Russ, it's two things. One, I mean, you know, I don't take Republicans credibly on deficits or debts anymore because when they pass the tax cuts, they prove that they've been lying the entire time. So, you know, I don't take them very credibly when they say something can't add or should add to it. I will say one thing, though, Russ, is when it's very likely, Russell, that we're going to have an infrastructure bill that will be pretty sizable at some point, maybe not this next bill because we're still in mitigation, but we will have a big bill and we need to because we're seriously behind in our infrastructure. That doesn't just go to the wealthiest folks. That creates millions and millions of jobs across the country and helps uh, make sure that we have roads and bridges and schools and broadband and water delivery systems that deliver clean water. So I just don't want anyone to think investment in infrastructure somehow just helps the wealthy, quite the opposite. I think it helps the country as a whole, but I don't think that's the solution short of helping people who are really hurting right now, which is uh, the many, many people who are unemployed at no fault of their own. Those are the folks that we really have to put our emphasis on. Arnie in Palm Springs, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman Pocan, hi. I have a body full of blood that I would like to donate. People are asking for donations all the time, and uh, apparently I can't because I'm gay. I understand that all the blood samples are always checked anyway before they're put into the blood system. Why is that law still in effect? Yeah, Arnie, you know, I should know this better than I'm going to give you an answer, and I'm going to apologize up front. I know they just changed it somewhat to a much shorter amount of time, but still that doesn't make sense for the very reason you said. The blood is checked in the supply, and again, it's insulting and discriminatory, the practice that's been out there. So there has been a recent change that says if someone's been with another person, the amount of time you're supposed to wait to give blood is seriously reduced. I think it should go away completely. You're completely right on it. But there was a recent change, and I wish I could tell you the exact amount of time, and I I don't have it because I think people are realizing it doesn't make sense to have that law in place. So they're using monogamy as a benchmark or a metric? Do they do that with straight people? No, exactly. And that's the point. And uh, they took it from, I think it was a year before, to I want to say it's like six weeks now. And it still doesn't make sense, but they did just change it. I just wish I remember what the change amount of time was. Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin has been very active working on this nationally as well. Um, but it, it makes no sense. Yeah, remarkable. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. 
the Big Cheese Progressive in Washington, D.C., representing the state of Wisconsin, pokan.house.gov, rep Mark Pokan on Twitter. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And we'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Pokan. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For our book club today, we're reading from David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. This is from the introduction. In his speech at the dedication of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., September 24, 2016, President Barack Obama delivered what he termed a, quote, clear-eyed view of a tragic and triumphant history of black Americans in the United States. He spoke of a history that is central to the larger American story, one that is both contradictory and extraordinary. He likened the African-American experience to the infinite depths of Shakespeare and scripture. The, quote, embrace of truth as best we can know it, said the president, is, quote, where real patriotism lies. Naming some of the major pivots of the country's past, Obama wrapped up his central theme in a remarkable sentence about the Civil War era. Quote, we've buttoned up our Union Blues to join the fight for our freedom. We've railed against injustice for decade upon decade, a lifetime of struggle and progress and enlightenment that we see etched in Frederick Douglass's mighty leonine gaze. End quote. How Americans react to Douglass's gaze, indeed how we gaze back at his visage, and more important, how we read him, appropriate him, or engage his legacies, informs how we use our past to determine who we are. Douglass's life and writing emerged from nearly the full scope of the 19th century, representative of the best and the worst in the American spirit. Douglass constantly probed the ironies of America's contradictions over slavery and race. Few Americans use Shakespeare and the Bible to comprehend his story and that of his people as much as Douglass. And there may be no better example of an American radical patriot than the slave who became a lyrical prophet of freedom, natural rights, and human equality. Obama channeled Douglas in his dedication speech, knowingly or not, so do many people today. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, a slave, in Talbot County, Maryland, in February 1818, the future Frederick Douglas was the son of Harriet Bailey, one of five daughters of Betsy Bailey, and with some likelihood his mother's white owner. He saw his mother for the last time in 1825, though he hardly knew her. She died the following year. Douglas lived 20 years as a slave and nearly nine years as a fugitive slave subject to recapture. From the 1840s to his death in 1895, he attained international fame as an abolitionist, editor, orator of almost unparalleled signature, and the author of three autobiographies that are classics of the genre. As a public man, he began his abolitionist career two decades before America would divide and fight a civil war over slavery that he openly welcomed. Douglas was born in a backwater of the slave society of the South, just as steamboats appeared in bays and on American rivers, and before the telegraph, the railroad, and the rotary press changed human mobility and consciousness. He died after the emergence of electric lights, the telephone, and the invention of the phonograph. The renewed orator and traveler loved and used most of these elements of modernity and technology. Douglas was the most photographed American of the 19th century, explained in this book and especially by the intrepid research of three other scholars I write upon. 
Although it can never really be measured, he may also have been, along with Mark Twain, the most widely traveled American public figure of his century. By the 1890s, in sheer miles and countless number of speeches, he had few rivals as a lecturer in the golden age of oratory. It is likely that more Americans heard Frederick Douglass speak than any other public figure of his time. Indeed, to see or hear Douglass became a kind of wonder of the American world. He struggled as well with the pleasures and perils of fame as much as anyone else in his century, with the possible exceptions of General Ulysses S. Grant or P.T. Barnum. Douglass's dilemma with fame was a matter of decades, not merely of moments, and fraught with racism. The orator and writer lived to see and interpret black emancipation, to work actively for women's rights long before they were achieved, to realize the civil rights triumphs and tragedies of Reconstruction, and to witness and contribute to America's economic and international expansion in the Gilded Age. He lived to the age of lynching and Jim Crow laws, when America collapsed into retreat from the real victories and revolutions in race relations that he had helped to win. He played a pivotal role in America's second founding out of the apocalypse of the Civil War, and he very much wished to see himself as a founder and defender of the Second American Republic. In one lifetime of anti-slavery, literary, and political activism, Douglas was many things, and the set of apparent paradoxes makes his story so attractive to, to biographers, as well as to so many constituencies today. He was a radical thinker and a proponent of classic 19th century political liberalism. At different times, he hated and loved his country. He was a ferocious critic of the United States and all its hypocrisies, but also, after emancipation, became a government bureaucrat, a diplomat, and a voice for territorial expansion. He strongly believed in self-reliance and demanded an activist interventionist government at all levels to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect black citizens against terror and discrimination. Douglas was a serious constitutional thinker, and few Americans have ever analyzed race with more poignancy and nuance than this mostly self-taught genius with words. He was a radical editor, writer, and activist. The book Frederick Douglass by David Blight. Tom, in North Hollywood, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, yeah, good morning, uh, Mark and Tom. First off, we the people are the government, and I strongly believe that. And I want to know what you think about the fact that I understand the reality of money in politics, and politicians have to have money in order to get elected, and the whole sickness of Citizens United and everything. But maybe what needs to happen, um, and I don't need your endorsement on this or anything, because I, I know that you're in a a tough position, but what if all these essential workers, the grocery store workers, the Target workers, the uh, Walmart workers, all did a general strike where they just did not show up for work? Would that actually get the attention of the Congress to know that we the people are the government rather than the corporate uh, masters that actually do their bidding? Tom, um, it's, it's a provocative point because uh, at what point do you make sure people are heard, right? And um, all too often, you are completely right when it comes to money and politics. You know, in the state legislature in Wisconsin, I was the author of 100% public financing of elections. I think the only way you're really going to clean elections up is to take money completely out and just have small dollar donations and otherwise use government funding to uh, fund minimalist campaigns 
so that you can actually have a system that works. The problem is, obviously, there's some, some challenges with the Supreme Court we've got to overcome, and that means Democrats are going to have to step up if we wind up winning the White House and the Senate and Congress to address that. Whether or not a wildcat strike would get attention certainly would get the national attention. The question is, I have found the tough message with elected officials around campaign finances. They won on a system, and some of them are afraid to change the rules because currently they're victors under the current system, and it seems to be a very personal, although you might call it selfish, position to try to get them to change. So it has been difficult, but again, if I had my Druthers, it would be 100% public financing, maybe some very small, uh, low-dollar, under $50 donations, so that absolutely you take away the power of the special interest and the wealthiest and uh, make it so that anyone can run for office based on your ideas. Sarah in Long Beach, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thanks. Uh, appreciate that, and I thank you for your time. Congressman Pocan, I have an idea about paying off a student loan. I mentioned it the other day on Tom's program. It's about having a committee. I want to know what you think about this. Uh, one 800 number with a committee that combines the Department of Finance, Taxes, or the Department of Education at a state level. And anyone who wanted to make a tax-deductible donation to pay off the student debt goes directly to pay off the student debt. Not mine, not this person or that person, but all of it. If they could get a committee to take the number and people just give, and whatever kind of write-off the states could come up with or what kind of gift tax, whatever, that they could give back to the millionaires, these, it's going to be overnight if we could pay off this debt. What do you think about that? Yeah, sir, I don't know if it would be overnight doing that. I understand what you're saying, and I think you know, there's some reasonableness to it. I would also argue that it's not create the debt to begin with um, uh, so that you don't have to worry about dealing with it. But you're being very pragmatic and there's a lot of student debt we got to deal with separately. I think you also have to deal with the front end of it. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Mark Pocan here on the Tom Hartman program. Stick around. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. 
But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Let's see here. Claire in Land of Lakes, Florida. You're on the Earth, Congressman Pokin. Actually, it's Clay in Land of Lakes, Florida. And greetings Clay, to you, my Congressman. Clay. That's okay. Greetings to you, Congressman and Tom. I appreciate you taking my call. You know, I know that Richard Wolf comes on your show, but I'm not sure that uh, the Congressman listens to his program. He did promote in his last program that I heard a solution to putting people back to work and at the same time addressing the issue we're having with our pandemic and that we would educate people to become testers. We would educate people to become uh, contact investigators and spend the monies on those things because testing is so important to try to control what's happening now. So why isn't Congress looking at a way to go to such a program where we go ahead and invest in educating people in how to do this and putting them to work? That would be a great way to stimulate the economy and put a bunch of people back to work since we have 30 million of them out of work. Yeah, Clay, I mean, that is happening, but you're never going to get 30 million jobs with that. Even like in Wisconsin, we're hiring 1,000 people to do contact tracing. We're about 2% of the population times that by 50, and you're not getting anywhere close to the unemployment. I, I truly believe the single best way to deal with unemployment is by making sure that those employers who no longer have the demand still are able to pay their employees, and that's through uh, a national paycheck guarantee like Germany, England, Denmark uh, are doing. If we did that, then you don't have people on unemployment, you don't have people on SNAP food assistance, uh, so you're saving on all those areas. People still have a job, and uh, they're largely made whole, and we'll be hiring people to do some of those things that you just talked about that we need to for the pandemic. Unfortunately, I don't see that proposal still making it as high up as it needs to. And I think because of that, we're going to continue to have unemployment. I just don't think unemployment insurance is an answer to this crisis, right? I, I think jobs are an answer to this crisis. Brad in Madison, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I served as part of Desert Storm and War on Terror. Americans do not need to buy 2,500 F-35s. Now when we have thousands more jets than any other nation already, our military spending is far more than any nation. Our bases, we have 95% of the foreign bases in the world are U.S. bases, and a lot of them just happen to be around the coast of China and Russia, and that includes the NATO bases, too, which we kind of control that. So I ask you, will you help us grow an anti-war movement? I know you're on the cutting edge in the Congress of anti-war legislation. 
Yeah, Brad, uh, it's interesting you say that. We have a letter right now that Barbara Lee and I have done to the chair of the Armed Services Committee asking if they can reduce the number for allocation for defense spending this year, specifically because we need money for COVID-19, which also one could consider uh, an attack on this country. In the last three years, we've increased defense spending 20% in this country, Tom, at a time of peace. And I think that's ridiculous. And now may be the opportunity to try to cut that number back from I think it's $738 billion was in the last budget, and I forget what the number adjusted. I think it might be the same number for this year, but this would be a good opportunity and a good reason to scale that number back. I think we have 20 people who've signed that letter so far. So, Brad, we're on the same wavelength. We're talking about that right now. This is that opportunity. Also, real quickly, with the sequester law ending for the next budget, I believe it is, That's one that tied defense and non-defense spending together. They'll be separated again. This is our opportunity to try to really scale back those dollars because I agree. I think we put way too much spending into defense at a time that we really need to invest it in priorities domestically. Congressman, what should we be looking at and where should we be focusing our personal activism over the next week or so until we next talk with you? Yeah, I think as always be heard, if you think uh, the National Paycheck Guarantee is a good idea, call your member of Congress or the Senate and, and say that. If you think it's a good idea to give payments on a regular basis to people, call your member of Congress or the Senate and say that. And then continue to be active locally, because I think the, more, the most impact you can have still is locally. And I think with some of these states and localities opening up a little too quickly, we risk having you know spikes in numbers again. So just be heard, be active at every level possible. This is really one of the most important times to be doing that. Yeah. And make sure that you're registered to vote. And is there a way that we can lobby states to have vote by mail? Um, absolutely. All of these, I mean, this is the time to be heard. The, the thing is, some legislatures are out of session, but they may have to come back if we pass more bills because there's tweaks that have to happen. It, it, don't let anyone tell you they can't do it in the tweaks because they think they can still, no matter what. Great. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us today. Great talking with you. Thank you. Of course. Tom, as always, thank you. Take care. Yep. Have a great afternoon. We'll be back. We're going to, boy, we've got a, a huge uh, show today. Uh, up next, uh, Dana Nuticelli about science and climate change. You're listening to Tom Hartman. This is Dana Nuticelli, the environmental scientist, writer, and author of Climatology versus Pseudoscience a regular contributor to the Yale Center for Environmental Communication, The Guardian, and Skeptical Science. Plus, uh, Dana has a master's degree in physics from UC Davis. YaleClimateConnections.org is his website. Dana1981 is your Twitter handle. I've got it. There we go. Uh, Dana, welcome to the program. I wanted to talk to you about Michael Moore's uh, or it's called Michael Moore's movie. He didn't make it. Uh, apparently, he uh, he's promoting or put his name on it or something. And uh, I was horrified when I watched this thing. But for people who haven't watched it, don't know what we're talking about here, you want to give us a brief sketch and then, you know, let's get into it. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, Just a brief note that I'm just speaking on on my behalf and not on behalf of Yale or anybody else. Basically, the premise of the film is that renewable energy like solar and wind power is no better than burning fossil fuels and it's all just an illusion. And so we should just keep going with the status quo and instead work on other, I mean, they don't really propose any other solutions, but they kind of imply that some sort of end to growth is the solution we should be aiming for rather than 
shifting to cleaner technologies. That's the basic summary of the film. Okay, and you can build a strong argument that growth and the way that we grow and even population growth are all you know mitigating factors in this. And the movie does point out basically the scam of you know wood chip biomass. But outside of that, it seems like the basic message is. Had these guys been making a movie about Thomas Edison back in the 1890s, they'd be saying, you know, his light bulb uh, it looks kind of nice, but it only burns for about 25 minutes. And, uh, you know, we should just go back to candles. And in fact, many of the statistics are way out of date. Those are some of my immediate thoughts. What, are, what is your specific critique of this documentary? There, there are a lot of very misleading scenes in there, but a lot of the scenes that look at clean technologies like solar panels and wind turbines, they were filmed kind of around the year 2010, when and these technologies have improved so fast, they've become so much cheaper and more efficient that if you're only looking at the technology from a decade ago, it's completely misrepresentative of what it can do today. Like solar panels have become something like 70, 80% cheaper over the past decade, which is not mentioned anywhere in the film. They just do this a couple scenes looking at solar panels that are over a decade old, and it gives the impression that these are outdated, inefficient technologies that are it's sort of like looking at cell phones and saying, and just looking at flip phones and saying, well, flip phones are terrible, and so cell phones are just not worthwhile when, you know, technology improves really fast. So you have to keep updating it. If you're going to film or release a film in 2020, it has to represent the technologies, the state of the technology in 2020, not in 2010. Um, so that's one problem. Another problem is just the kind of, the, at one point they make the claim that because fossil fuels are required to kind of manufacture and install these clean technologies, that it's no better than a fossil, just continuing to burn fossil fuels in power plants which is just, it's an absurdly wrong claim because um, scientists do things called life cycle assessments that look at the carbon footprint associated with these things, manufacturing, installation, lifelong operation, and decommissioning of all kinds of power plants. And these life, life cycle assessments show that renewable technologies like wind and solar are have a much, much, much smaller overall lifetime carbon footprint than coal and natural gas do, something like 20 times smaller. But like, the film doesn't do any kind of these, like, uh, quantitative assessments. It doesn't compare the numbers. It just says, well, because the carbon footprint of uh, solar and wind isn't zero, then it's no better than a coal-burning power plant, which is completely ridiculous. And just, like, that's the most misleading claim in the entire film. It's just flat-out insanely false. Yeah, and th when this uh, documentary first came out, it screened at uh, one of the big film festivals. You know, it does go after a couple of uh, uh, sacred cows in the green movement, specifically Al Gore and Bill McKibben, and essentially accuses them of, you know, being less than honest or being on the take. Both of them, and specifically with regard to biomass, both of them have loudly, publicly uh, reversed or walked away from any position on biomass. And in every other regard, it seems like these are just like really great people who are doing good work. And after the film came out and they walked back those positions, but, you know, then continued doing what they're doing, which I salute. My understanding is that Michael Moore pulled this film out of distribution, but then it just went over to YouTube, which is where, what, some five million people have seen it now. What's the story here with this thing? How did this film get made? What, why is Michael Moore's name on it? 
Um, yeah, I mean, Jeff Gibbs was the director, but Michael Moore was the producer on it. So I think Jeff Gibbs did most of the work and kind of brought Michael Moore on board with it. I believe it was, there's a, a group called Films for Action that had originally distributed it, and then they pulled it, and then they decided that they didn't want to get the kind of backlash and to draw more attention to it by pulling it, so they put it back on uh, to their distribution website. But it's primarily been viewed on YouTube. I think it's been viewed more than 7 million times on YouTube. It hasn't been picked up by very many other distributors for probably because of the very misleading nature of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, the attacks, especially on Bill McKibben, are, are pretty ridiculous because Bill McKibben has spent basically his entire career trying to slow climate change. And it, it, it paints him as this, as this villain who's trying to like burn entire forests for energy or something like that. Uh, when, I mean... In the past, he's in some cases supported using wood-burning facilities for small energy production. But in his defense, it's a very complicated issue because there are ways to do to burn wood sustainably. If you're using waste wood, wood that's you know harvested that's not suitable for other uses, then it can't be done sustainably. It's just that in practice, it hasn't been done sustainably, and that's why more groups and individuals have kind of come out against burning wood for energy just because it's in practice it hasn't been done very sustainably and so that's why since somewhere around 2016 Bill McKibben has very strongly been against burning wood for fuel and again this film came out in 2020 and you know for the last four years he's been very strong against it and the film at no point mentioned that it, it portrayed him as this you know wood burning villain who's trying to basically clear-cut forests and burn them for energy which is just not at all yeah uh, and it's, it's particularly weird given that the go-to message of the film is, you know, cut growth, cut population, and Bill McKibben's first book was titled Just One. It was a plea to only have one child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his, I mean, exactly. His entire career, he's been trying to find the best possible solutions. And at one point, you know, in the past, it seemed like burning wood, if done sustainably, could be a viable solution, at least on small scales. And, you know, things change. Again, technologies change, and our practices change, and people change their opinions accordingly. And so... I don't know why they decided to make him out as a villain in the film. And I mean, there's a very same, a similar story for Al Gore, who, again, for his career, is trying to do what he could to solve the climate crisis. And nobody's perfect, but they're all doing their best. And to portray them as villains like, on the same footing as the Koch brothers or something like that is just, it's, it's really ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, I lived in Vermont for 10 years and we, we heated with wood. I mean, you know, a lot of people do. Right. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we also had some acreage and, and, you know, we cut our own wood and I, I split it every, I mean, it's, it, but that's, that's a whole different thing than, than the whole power plant thing. Anyhow, it's fascinating. And I, I wanted to get, you know, uh, the message out there that if you've seen this movie, you're only getting a fraction of the story and, and you need to get the rest of the story. Dana Nutichel, uh, environmental scientist, writer, author of Climatology versus Pseudoscience, regular contributor to you know, all kinds of sites, including the, the Guardian, YaleClimateConnections.org. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for dropping by today. Thanks, Tom. Good talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters. It's titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. 
Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity, equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program which mandated the banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowner's income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate, and it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. For the homeowners, it was a no-brainer. They were getting low-interest loans from banks for the solar panels, and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007 saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes, and in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, the cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed just in the last three years. It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. 
Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year. A report from the Pew Charitable Trust said a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.